This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Like my laptop sticker? Look what happens when you open it. What a thrill to come over to Melbourne and talk about David Bowie. Thank you, ACMI and Deacon. What an awesome thing. Um, I did a count-up, and this is the eighth paper on David Bowie that I've given at academic conferences. A comedic line that I toyed with saying next but quickly abandoned was that Mr. Bowie owes me. But of course, the complete opposite is true. Increasingly, my curiosity has turned inward. I want to understand how it was that way back in 1973, a skinny, pale young Englishman was able to make such a huge impact upon a shy 13-year-old boy 12,000 miles away in Hamilton, New Zealand. Considerably aided by the passage of four decades since then, and I guess my own immersion in the performing arts, I think I'm coming to some semblance of an understanding As is the case, I expect, for many people at this symposium, I do feel I owe a large debt of thanks to David Bowie. My first introduction was this album, released in 1972, but coming to my attention a year later. It's a long way to New Zealand. Some quick visual analysis. What message does this highly communicative image sent to the viewer. Bowie, aka Ziggy's presence within his surroundings is incongruous. He is estranged, marginalized, alienated, and diminished by his size within the frame, completely out of place dressed as he is and carrying his electric guitar in the bleak urban industrial environment, faced with the hidden dangers awaiting him in both the city and the night. But rather than looking vulnerable in the face of these odds, he looks strong. I have argued in my chapter in the wonderful book Enchanting David Bowie that is to be launched at the symposium tomorrow hats off to the Deacon crew, that he is a heroic figure in this image, his guitar equating to a sword or a gun, such as you might see in statues or paintings of military heroes the world over. And heroes or anti-heroes by their very nature must stand on the outside. As outlined in my um, abstract, (laughs) this paper draws upon autoethnography. That is, I get to talk about myself. I've never done this in a um, paper before, so it's a little bit weird. Here's me in 1970, a mostly confident, happy, and obviously extremely handsome 10-year-old boy, looking with considerable excitement at the dawning of the 1970s. But let's look ever so briefly at New Zealand society and culture at the time, because the excitement of the dawning of a new decade was tempered, even for kids, by dark clouds. Dauntingly and impossibly, for instance, it was compulsory for young boys such as myself to aspire to become one of these. And all black, this is the mighty Brian Williams in action. Even today, this man could crush me between thumb and forefinger, so I was never going to make it to the epitome of Kiwi manhood, that's for sure. But there was also big trouble on New Zealand's doorstep um, beyond the future of the nation's rugby future. The, um, The dark clouds I spoke of might perhaps have even taken the shape of mushrooms. These were, um, dark days in terms of New Zealand and Australia's relationship with France uh, because of the French testing 
atmospheric testing on Mururau Atoll down in our part of the world. Um, first time I think I ever experienced anything <laughs> approaching national pride was when our Labour government sent frigates to the exclusion zone around Mururau Atoll to protest about the testing. Um, I like this quote. There, were <laughs> there was a lot of public outrage at the time. I particularly like this one, which I'll let you read for yourselves. Um, you look at the newspapers back in the day, and um, the letters to the editor are full of this kind of thing. Public protests, etc. Um, so, dark days for Australasia's relationship with France. Even today, poodles in Auckland still look around nervously when they go walkies. <laughs> Not true. We're all friends again. Um, I remember, though, vividly in the school playground debates about the French testing in, in the Pacific and how that mushroom cloud might go up into the atmosphere and if the wind was blowing the right way, it would pull it down over New Zealand and I can't remember if our teeth would turn grey and our hair would fall out or our hair would turn grey and our teeth would fall out, I'm not sure, but something along those lines was going to happen. And so we had a, a deep-seated actual fear of apocalypse. Um, also, at the same time, we were having a slight battle with the US Navy because they were um, coming into our ports and with a neither confirm nor deny policy on whether they were carrying nuclear weapons or not. We might have them on board. We might not. Um, so that was worrying. Um, so this theme of imminent apocalypse was seeded here. And of course, in 1973, when I heard the... Um, Ziggy Stardust album, particularly that opening track, Five Years, I connected, as I could imagine, similar scenes perhaps happening in my own hometown. Now, I'm going to um, play you th that song. I mean, it's a music conference, right? So. My thanks go to... Ooh, sorry about that. My thanks go to student of mine who now lives in Melbourne who very kindly loaned me this guitar and also very kindly put brand new strings on it and as any guitarist in the audience knows brand new strings like time to settle certainly in tune at the start anyway pushing through the market square so many mothers sighing News had just come over We had five years left to cry in News guy wept and told us Earth was really dying Cried so much his face was wet Then I knew he was not lying I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies I saw boys Toys, electric kinds and TVs My brain hurt like a warehouse It had no room to spare I had to cram so many things To store everything in there All the fat skinny people And all the tall short people And all the nobody people And all the somebody people I never thought I'd need so many people 
girl my age went off her head It's some tiny children If the black hadn't have pulled her off Well, I think she would have killed them A soldier with a broken arm Fixed his stare to the wheels of a Cadillac A cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest And the queer threw up at the sight of that I think I saw you in an ice cream parlor Drinking milkshakes cold and long Smiling and waving and looking so fine Don't think you knew you were in this song And it was cold and it rained So I felt like an actor And I thought of Ma And I wanted to get back there Your face, your age The way that you talk I kissed you, you're beautiful I want you to walk We got five years Stuck on my eyes Five years What a surprise We've got five years My brain hurts a lot Five years, that's all we've got. We got five years, what a surprise. Five years, stuck on my eyes. We got five years, my brain hurts a lot. Five years, that's all we've got. Five years, five years, five years. Thank you very much. So yes, that, that song made a huge impact upon me, as of course did David Bowie from that day on. Um, so as well, um, on the Ziggy Stardust album, Bowie helped to put voice to a generational fear of global apocalypse that we were far from exempt from just because we were sitting cozy down here in the South Pacific. He also articulated the lack of faith that we alienated youth had in the belief systems upon which our parents and older, um, older siblings had relied. However, for many fans, there's also been a much more personal connection. Being different, David Bowie told us that being different was not just okay, but maybe desirable and sexy. If you didn't fit in for myriad possible reasons, then you were just like him. So suddenly, you did fit in by virtue of what had always previously been your Achilles heel. Your very estrangement was now your calling card. What an empowering, freeing change of, change of mindset this was. It wasn't you that was out of step with the rest of the world, it was the rest of the world that was out of step with you. The worm had turned. And in 1973, that was a message I needed very, very badly. Several things happened to me in 1973. I'd had a very happy childhood up until that point, but in 1973, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and spent almost that whole year in hospital and never expected to come out. She did, so that was pretty cool. Live to 87, go mum. My dad got a new job that took him away from home. It was a traveling job, so he was gone from the family home. Um, my sister, there was just the two of us at home, she got married, she left as well. 
And so in 1973, everything changed. The rug was pulled out from my nice, safe childhood. I also started high school in the third form of a very, very um, sport rugby-oriented school and quickly came to the attention. I was a very small, glam rock-influenced kid. And um, quickly came to the attention of a bunch of very nasty bullies and so forth. It was just a crap year, 1973, I've got to say. So perfect timing for David Bowie to enter my world. I needed someone to tell me it was okay, and David did. Um, if Bowie became your champion, um, oh, sorry, look, this is what I became. I became a mouse. And I shut down and entered this um, imaginary glam rock world in my head. <laughs> That's how I felt inside. But if Bowie became your champion, a magnet for the alienated. Your badge was maybe a rooster cut, a copy of Aladdin Sane held casually under your arm, a diamond dog's badge, or for the braver amongst us, perhaps a touch of eyeliner or lippy. Instead of carrying your sense of difference damagingly on the inside like a secret shame, you wore it on the outside for all to see, and how empowering was that? Bowie's trick or message, and it had worked superbly for him, was that you could take control. You could reinvent yourself in a more favorable guise than that which life had thus far thrust upon you. If you looked and acted the role that you designed for yourself, life could indeed follow art, and the role could become real and not remain fantasy. Because hadn't he become a rock star through pretending to be one? It wasn't just confined to Bowie, of course. This transformative ethos, I believe, extended to the wider, wonderful world of glam rock. This is an unused image shot by photographer Mick Rock for a Mott the Hoople um, single. I think it was all the young dudes, actually. And the transformative ethos of glam rock, I think, is just displayed brilliantly in that image. Um, I teach my performance students at Otago University the nature and value of creating a performance skin, very Bowie-esque. If they can portray on stage, even if by blatant conscious acting, the ideal performance self to which they aspire, then over time they realise that the stage holds no fear for them because if they can pull off what starts as an illusion time and time again, that false confidence they may have felt they're portraying becomes real confidence. And of course, such a process isn't confined just to the stage. We are all capable of that in real life. It's a matter of drawing on the parts of our personality that are useful in any given situation and suppressing other parts that are not useful. And as I say to my students, this is not being false or fake because you're still drawing on aspects of your real self. After all, I say to them, you most certainly don't act and talk the same way around your grandparents as you do around your friends, do you? It all comes from your real self. Bowie exemplified this malleability of personality and behavior like no one else of my generation. And it was, he put it out there plainly for us all to see and hear, such as these lyrics from the Ziggy Stardust album, um, the song Star. He was always wore what he was doing on his sleeve. Um, this license to play was a very new concept, especially for the Antipodean male. Soon, wonderfully, we would have our own um, role models. This did nothing for what Australians think about New Zealanders and sheep, I've got to say. <laughs> and Australia, I love this band of yours. Very quick personal gripe. Why, when we are kids, I've got a five-year-old son, he's just started school. His kinder used to look like this wonderful creative place where colour and creativity role play was encouraged. He's now at school, 
just out of school, but he's already in a uniform. You leave school, you go into an office, where's all that colour and creativity gone? <laughs> why does this happen as we get older? Why is it so valued when we are young, the value of creativity and play, and then as we get older, it, is, it dissipates and it's gone? Um, I want to encourage you all to play, and when you get back to your offices after the symposium, I want you to do this with your workmates. Okay, I'm just going to wrap up. I um, try and walk the walk a little in a very modest way um, with my own sort of performative alter egos. I can't just talk to the students about it without actually showing them one. And so I've invented this character um, drawing muchly on this fantastic person that's brought us all together here now called um, Dr. Glam. And here's me. We have a nightclub on campus at Otago University. How cool is that? And so I do gigs there sometimes. Students get into it. Um, I like walking around in public like that because why wouldn't you? Um, this image I particularly like because my keyboard player Libby in the blue has an enormous albatross about to attack her. <laughs> Takes a moment to get this one. That's me with my kids. Sorry, see I told you there was a bit of me in this paper. Um, it's something they, have, they haven't all worked folks. Not all the alter egos work. The singing reindeer was crap. <laughs> but what I really like doing is going into schools and spreading the anti-empowerment um, anti movement, the um, anti-bullying and self-empowerment message, which I very much enjoy doing in one of my alter egos, Dr. Glam there. Um, oh, it could go on. I'm going to stop now. In summation, I see David Bowie as a master of fluidity. He legitimized play and expanded the realm of possibilities for his legions of fans. He at no stage promised to have all the answers, but he taught us how to ask the questions. He made fear and insecurity sexy and allowed his fans to bring what they had always kept on the inside, outside. And this is my last slide. I know it's going to seem like shameless advertising, but there you go. Um, I want to share with you just very briefly the ridiculously difficult task I had in choosing a cover. I was confronted by so many Bowies, it was ridiculous. After much toing and froing between myself and the publisher, we opted for this one, but the process again exemplified for me the unique nature of the man. Would an author of a book on Bruce Springsteen or Rod Stewart, with no disrespect to them, have to grapple with anything like such a dilemma of which Rod Stewart or which Bruce Springsteen to choose? No. David Bowie issues the myth of a single, seamless, true self that one must show to the world at all times. He acknowledges that as human beings we are more complex than that and that life is more complex than that. Life is a noble struggle during which we try to find out who we really are, and through David Bowie, we have been able to learn more about aspects of ourselves. Thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website. <laughs>